Romans 8.28, um, it's on page 9.55 in the Pew Bibles, more than conquerors. And we know that all thing, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. For those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many, many brothers. And those He predestined, He also called; those He called, He also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither heights nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. May God bless this reading. Okay. Well, let us... Um, yes, well, let us come to the throne of grace in prayer as we come to the scriptures. Father, again, we come to this, your word, that it would encourage us and that we might have that eternal hope fixed in our hearts and our minds that when trials and tribulations come, when joys overtake us, we shall not forget what you have done for us in Christ. We shall not fear the future, but look to him in his name. Amen. I can't read the watch. Doesn't matter which way I put it, I can't read it. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. And um, it's from Romans 18, sorry, Romans 8, verse 18, that I want us to think about this morning. In particular, now there are, I'm not sure how many verses there are, 20 something. And uh, if I was preaching through this chapter, there would be at least that many sermons because there is that much involved in the deep theology. That is, by theology, I mean simply knowledge of God that uh, we couldn't even exhaust it in that many sermons. 
But this morning I want to go through it fairly quickly with you and just simply leave you with the challenge. What is your hope for the future? Some of us are going to approach the end of our lives sooner than others. For some that may come suddenly and unexpectedly and for others it may come by a slower means. But whichever it is, are we ready? And do you have every confidence as the Apostle Paul has here? He says, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Do you really believe that? That's the question that I want to leave you with this morning. We are more than conquerors, said Paul. I'm asking you, are you a conqueror? Now, young people, you might have heard uh, about Napoleon Bonaparte. He was known as a great conqueror. I'm not sure why, but... I don't think he was a great man at all. I think the man was a bloodthirsty fellow. But he was, history regards him as a conqueror. But when Paul uses this word here uh, in verse, at a guess, <laughs> 37, is it? Paul uses a word in the Greek that begins with the little word hyper. Now, most of us here have had children and you may have either had children that if you give them red cordial they become hyperactive okay that's where the word comes from comes out of the greek and paul says you are a hyper conqueror more than just a napoleon bonaparte more than just an allied general who took, us, took his soldiers into war and won battles and gave us the freedom that we have today. You are more than conquerors. You're super conquerors through him who loved us. And I wonder this morning what it is that we're relying on for eternal life. Our own goodness the good things that we've done and we've written a list in the background of our mind that we think we will present to the Lord when we stand in glory before him? Is it in our wealth or the position we've held? Is it because we have blood, a bloodline that links us to somebody famous or to royalty? Do we rely in those sorts of things, our own goodness, the good things that we do today to help people. The same apostle wrote in the book of Ephesians, and I'll try and get it off the top of my head because I can't read it. <coughs> Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, 9 and 10. For it is by grace, through faith, that we are saved. It is not of ourselves lest anyone should boast. Where's that list in the back of your head of your good works and your good deeds that you might want to rely on to say to the Lord, look, I've done this and I've done that. I deserve to get in. 
It is not of works, lest anyone should boast. You see, that's the point of faith. It's the point of grace. We cannot boast in our own strength before the throne of grace. He goes on in verse 10 of Ephesians chapter 2. He says, we are his workmanship. The very good that you have, the very good that you are, the very good that you do, is there because God has called you into his court by faith, through his grace, and that alone. Well, let's have a look at this text, and I'll do my best here to divide this up for you as we go. And uh, Paul begins in verse 18, he says, For I consider the sufferings of the present time are not worthy. Is that what it says? Compared, are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is yet to come. Paul is convinced that all of the sufferings that we go through in this life are to prepare us for that glory in eternity. Now, why some people suffer more than others, the scripture doesn't tell us. It does give us a clue in one part where um, the Pharisees, I think it was, came to Jesus on one occasion. They were walking down the street and there's a young crippled boy. He can't walk. And the church authorities try to trip him up and they say to him, Lord, who sinned? His parents or this lad that he's in this condition? Jesus said, neither. He's that way because I will be glorified. Now, in that particular instance, if I remember it correctly, the boy was crippled. The Lord walked away and the the child, young lad, stayed crippled. He didn't heal him. How does that bring glory to God? There's a real propensity in our societies today, and particularly the church society, to want and desire healing. Now, there's... I don't have a problem with it in that people desire it. And I've seen people healed in my own ministry, not because we have healing services and all the rest of it, but simply because somebody in a congregation goes to the elders and asks, would you pray for me? You see, that's the biblical method. That's the biblical method. Is any of you sick? James. Is any of you sick? Any of you suffering? Go to the elders. Don't organise a healing service with the laying on of hands and advertise it and all the rest of it. In Matthew 7 or 17, 7, there's an instance where people come to Jesus. He says, they're going to come to me and say, Lord, Lord, haven't we performed miracles in your name? Haven't we done this or that? Jesus says, go away from me because I never knew you. See, the performance of miracles 
does not prove that one is a Christian. It's by grace and grace alone that each and every one of us will stand in his presence. I am convinced, Paul says, how do you deal with suffering? Anger? Blame God for it? Or do you turn it around and say, what is the Lord saying to me? How can I love him through this? How can I turn my suffering to his glory? How can I turn our suffering corporately as a church? Well, Paul says that we're more than conquerors. And that we ought, and the verses after that, he basically says we ought not fear the future. Let's go through this and see why Paul says that. In verse 19, he says there the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. The created order is waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. That is Jesus Christ returning. Listen to what it says in the next verse. For the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of them who endured The creation groans. There are many Christians who are scientists who believe today, and I don't want to make an issue of this because we cannot prove it, who earnestly believe that when there are earthquakes and droughts and floods and all of these sorts of natural phenomena that go on in the world, it is the earth trying to shake off human sin the created order groans under the sin of Adam and it wants to be rid of it now we have to be very very careful with this Walt Disney once upon a time read you know who I mean uh, he read uh, something like this and he produced all his cartoon characters Because if you read the narrative, it suggests, and you go to Revelation, you marry them two together, you see created order arrayed before the throne of grace. So Disney uh, humanized the animals, made a lot of money out of it. Fine. But we need to be very careful here how we think about uh, the the idea of trees and mountains and frogs and lizards and crickets and excuse me birds and what have you groaning under the burden of sin we shouldn't humanize them as such but that's what the scripture says when Paul says we're more than conquerors we're super conquerors the first reason he says is we must understand that the whole creation groans 
Therefore, because of Christ in us, we are more than conquerors. We've overcome in Christ the sin of the world, the sin of Adam that separates us from the love of God. Then down in about verse 25, is it? He moves to the next section and he says, We ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, waiting for Jesus Christ to come and take us into his presence as his sons and daughters. Do you groan under the burden of human sin? Do you groan inwardly, desiring to see Jesus Christ, to see his return, to have him reach out his arms and take you to himself? See, one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit in us is that the Holy Spirit will drive us to groan because of our sin longing to be free from it and attached completely and utterly to Jesus Christ and his glory, his love and his grace down in verse 20 I'm not sure, I think it's 26 it says there that likewise The Holy Spirit also helps in our weakness. Because the Spirit himself makes intercessions for us with groanings. Did you ever conceive of the Holy Spirit groaning within you because of sin? Read verse 26 if that's what it is. I think it is. That's what the scripture says. This is the word of God in us. The Holy Spirit in us should be driving us. We should be allowing the Holy Spirit to drive us to desire this intimate knowledge of Jesus Christ. So that we know deep within our our hearts, deep within our souls, that we do have eternal life. That we are saved today in spite of our sinfulness. That's the purpose. So here Paul says we're super conquerors. We must be. One, because the created order groans under the burden of sin. It's waiting for Jesus Christ. It's longing for Jesus Christ to return. We ourselves groan. That's the second reason. We want to be free from this body of sin, says Paul. In another place. And thirdly, here we have the Holy Spirit groaning. It is the Holy Spirit who indwells us. It is the Holy Spirit who seals us into so great a salvation. 
Let's turn over the page or over the page in my Bible, and I think it's about verse 30. He says, We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God. Unless we think that everybody who claims to worship God uh, is saved, we need to be very careful and define who God is in this context. And who is God? None other than Jesus Christ. So if somebody denies the lordship and the godship of Jesus Christ, they deny God himself. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God. To those who are called according to his will. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4 says, I knew you before I created the world. Were you there? God says you were. Again, this is one of the things we don't understand. I knew you before I created the world. In other words, he's saying in a, an odd sort of a way, my odd interpretation of it he says I, I knew you before I created the world therefore I've created the world in order that the cross itself might be stood upon it um, stood upon it and that my son Jesus Christ would come into this world and die for you that you would come to me back to where we were and then he goes on with deep theology deep deep theology I'll try and read it. Verse 29, I think it is. For whom he, God, foreknew, and I'm not going to make it. He basically says, those he foreknew, he redeemed. Those he chose, he predestined in the next verse. And those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he redeemed. And those he redeemed, he glorified. And in the original Greek, same as in the English, the word glorified is in the past tense. It's not future. It's already done. Do you feel glorified? Paul puts it another way. He says, you are super conquerors. We live in this world and we suffer for it. But the truth of the scripture is, we're already glorified. If you, my friends, if you believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God, that he died for your sin, that he rose again from the, from the grave and ascended back into glory, Romans 10 verse 9 says, you shall be saved. <coughs> if you can own that verse, Romans 10 verse 9, then you have been glorified. Past tense. You are a super conqueror. 
in Jesus Christ. Well, the apostle goes on. He says, what shall we say? Verse 31. What shall we say to these things? That the created order groans under the burden of sin. That we ourselves groan under the burden of sin. That the Holy Spirit groans under the burden of sin. Our sin, not his own, our sin. He is sinless. And if God has chosen us and if God has called us and he's glorified us, who can be against us? No, we're more than super conquerors. You see, that's what Paul's line of thought here is from verse 18 through to the end of this narrative. If God is for us, he says in verse 20, 31, he says, if God is for us, who can condemn us? But we do allow Satan to do Condemn us, don't we? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. We have him, and no one can condemn us. No one can condemn the faith to which we have been brought in, because Christ came and took our sin and washed it clean, and suffered the anger and the punishment, the wrath of God in his own flesh, that we would go free. There are certain other questions there in those verses. Who is it that condemns a little further down? Who is it that condemns? No one. Do you feel condemned? Does Satan sit on your shoulder, believer in Jesus Christ, and whisper sweet nothings in your ear to make you doubt his salvation that's so rich and so free? Come to these scriptures and consider them again in the light of what we have been talking about. In all of these things, we are more than conquerors. We're super conquerors through him who loved us. And then Paul goes on in those last two verses, I think it is. And he says, there is neither height nor depth, nor breadth, nor principalities, nor powers in the universe satanic powers he's talking about angelic fallen angelic beings there is nothing in this universe that can ever separate us from the love of God we spoke to the children about an eternal home do you believe it do you know that you are a super conqueror if you believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and Saviour and that mansion One little room in this enormous place called heaven, described as a mansion, will have your name on the door. Don't know about in gold letters, but it's going to be on that door. Or perhaps you sit here this morning unsure of your eternity. Could I plead with you to come to this Christ of glory? Look upon him, turn to him and submit to him. That he would say, well done and good and faithful servant to you as well. Amen.